our readings for this All Saints Sunday. Cast an eye into Revelation. We'll hear some, some wisdom from the Epistle of John before we embrace the message of the Gospel on the Sermon on the Mount. Brothers and sisters, let's open our ears and our hearts to hear what God has to say to his people. Our first reading this evening comes from the book of Revelation, chapter 7, verses 9 to 17. After this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. And they were wearing white robes, and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell down on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders asked me, These in white robes, who are they and where did they come from? I answered, Sir, you know. And he said, these are they who have come out from the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be to God. The second reading is taken from the book of 1 John, chapter 2, verse 28 to chapter 3, verse 3. And now, dear children, continue in him, so that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it does not know him. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be, has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. 
All who have this hope in Him purify themselves, just as He is pure. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Gospel portion for this Sunday is from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter five, a familiar passage from the Sermon of the Mount. Please stand. As we hear the good news according to Matthew. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Let's turn first to the Lord. Father in heaven, this evening as we come before you, help us to embrace your word with our hearts and our minds to know who we are in you, what it means to be a saint in the household of God. We learn these things by your Spirit, who through you promised to illumine the texts. And so take them to our minds and fill our hearts with their truth and our will with the desire to obey. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. The autumn afternoon, as I recall it, was bright and blue. The air was chilly and fresh. I'm old enough I get to say this. I'm not sure the year. I think it was 93, might have been 94. But I'm sure of the date. It was October 31st. A young Jewish colleague and I were driving from Ljubljana, Slovenia, that's in the north end of what used to be Yugoslavia, across the highway to a small city in southwest Hungary, Pech. We left about noon. It was a bad road. About an eight-hour drive on a two-lane highway. We crossed the Hungarian border in late afternoon onto what's called the Pannonian Plain, a vast farmland that stretches from Budapest all the way to Belgrade and Serbia. 
scarcely past the border, the flatland began to roll and fields unfolded before us, recently harvested. And since the sun had descended or was descending, it seemed as though they were dusted with gold. About an hour on, around six, the sun had set, but the sky was still aglow, and a cloak of dusky gray hung over everything, like a cloud. There was a sign, it was a town, one of those crazy Hungarian names, Medjikanija, lay just ahead. As we approached, the road rose up over a rolling hill, and the town spread out before us at our feet. And above on the next hill in town stood a towering Catholic church, floodlit, and at its feet a flickering sea of red candlelight rolled towards us. Hundreds of red lanterns with candles inside filled this immense churchyard as far as the eye could see. One lantern for each grave of a departed soul. It really took my breath away. My Jewish colleague said, what's this? Now, I'm a boy from the American Midwest who grew up an evangelical fundamentalist. I had no idea. I didn't know that October 31st, I thought it was Halloween, that October 31st was the beginning, as in Jewish tradition, the eve of All Saints Day. And as we know from this church here, the day begins at sunset, does it not? And so this rolling cloud uh, carpet of red light stretched out before us. In some ways, it's a theological statement. It's evocative, but it's rooted in a widely shared theology that all the departed who find their, themselves in heaven are saints. I don't doubt it, but I do suspect it's not the whole story. Today's text, chosen for all saints, in fact, record a more complicated truth. I'm not challenging those who are around the throne that they're not saints. In fact, later on this evening, we'll refer to them as we open the communion service. David will as he leads us. So listen for it. But there's more. Actually, I think much more. In a simple sentence, it would go like this. Salvation is merely the first step to becoming a saint. Or another way. Salvation begins us on the road to sainthood. Each of these scriptures, I think, has a related truth to tell us. <clears throat> the first we'll look at is that saints are part of the family of God, adopted when they trust Jesus and his sacrifice to forgive their sin and to grant them his holiness such that they be can become part of the family. The second text will essentially say mature saints live up to the family's code of behavior. All families have a code, whether they know it or not. Mature saints live up to the family's code of behavior, and that will reflect the father's values. And thirdly, mature saints, uh, thirdly, the father's expect expectations are high. The Father's expectations are high. 
filled with trials and grace and courage and glory. So I think the place we should begin is 1 John. So if you'll turn on your Bibles and scroll to the second chapter of 1 John, verse 28, or if you're old-fashioned, you can turn there as well. See what great love the Father has lavished on us, uh, chapter 3 begins in verse 1, that we should be called the children of God. Everything in this passage from 2.28 to its conclusion that we read hangs on this phrase. If those who become disciples of Jesus are adopted as children in God's family, then that becomes their identity. There's no identity on earth deeper than our families. And actually, in this case, it's our whole identity. If we accept Jesus' sacrifice, we accept his forgiveness, we're in the family, full stop. Or if you're not English, that means period. Such is the nature of grace. But there's more. The paragraph beginning with chapter 228 says, children continue in him. Now, that's the NIV text. I'm not sure it's the best translation. The old text or a better copy of the Greek, the word abide. Abide has a deeper meaning. First of all, of course, it means to live with him. That mystical reality that his spirit is within us, that there's no space in our lives where his presence cannot be felt or known. But secondly, the scriptures that follow say, to, to bear patiently, to endure, to wait. I think those definitions perhaps are appropriate for tonight. Because John's words foreshadow the Father's and the Savior's expectations. Then John says, if we know God, we know he is righteous. Now stop a second. Why do we know he is righteous? Because we actually know him. We don't know about him. We know what he's like. He's holy and he is righteous. And then John goes on to say, and we'll recognize the other members of the family by their righteousness. And frankly, they'll recognize us for the same reason. Chapter 3, verses 1 to 3, maybe just two things to note. John then makes sure these children know the implications of being part of the family. The word, the world, now, when I grew up, we all knew what the world was. They were different from us. But the world, the world is not part of the family. It's the biblical phrase for those who reject the God of Jacob and his Messiah. The world will not know us because they did not know him. And what that means is they won't accept us if they didn't accept him. A hard truth. 
paragraph concludes with a promise and a warning. The promise, we will in the end become like the risen Messiah. Not the threat, but the challenges. Therefore, all of us who have this hope will purify ourselves because he is pure. You know, what we do with this is kind of simple. One doesn't have to come down through generations and cultures. It's pretty clear. These ancient words do apply to us like they are. Saints are the children of God because of Jesus. In Jesus, they are promised new life that begins now and continues into eternity. But the his purity is also for us. And the path to his kind of sainthood, not mere ethics, but a way of life has to be ours too. I'll touch on that a bit more in a moment. By the way, this idea of a saint, you know, we Christians didn't invent it. You wouldn't be surprised to hear this, but it's Jewish. A little different definition. Uh, Jewish scholars considered someone who was a saint as someone who was in front of the law. And by that they meant beyond the boundaries of the law more than the law, when the law became something that they lived, not just something that they did. Which actually is a good way to take us to Matthew 5. But before we go to Matthew 5, chapter 1, you might scroll to uh, chapter 5, verse 17. It's a kind of controversial verse. Do not think I came to abolish the law, the Torah, or the prophets, declares Jesus. I have come to most translations say, fulfill them. I think it's more correct to say, I came to interpret them properly. When we started, I said that our second text would demonstrate that mature saints live up to the family's code of behavior that reflects the Father's values. Jesus was interpreting the code of behavior properly. We'll look at verses 1 to 12, and we'll have to go quickly because time hastens. It's what we call the Beatitudes, that the things that, uh, frankly, win God's favor or approval, <clears throat> his blessing, the sort of things that make a father proud. What we must be alert to is how different the family code is from the world. So let's just go through it machine gun style, verse by verse. We've got to stop a moment on verse 2. Our text, uh, which wants to make it understandable, says Jesus sat down to teach. Unfortunately, it misses an incredibly important idiom, Hebrew idiom, actually, that goes all the way back to jo Job chapter 3, verse 1. The text actually reads in Greek, he opened his mouth. Now, when a Jewish reader... Actually, they weren't reading this, they were listening to it. When he hears, he opened his mouth in American colloquialism would say, listen up now, this is important. And what follows, of course, the world has known as important for a long time. Verse 3, the blessed, the favored of God, can be people who are poor in spirit. Now, I'm, I'm just a kid from a small town. I didn't know the difference between spirit and soul as the Bible taught it. Spirit in the flesh, 
soul and the flesh is what we usually think of as Christians, that part of us that's immortal. But our spirit, as it's used in Jewish thought, is sort of what John Maynard Keynes called the animal vitality of a creature that departs when they die. Probably if we move it forward a couple of centuries, we'd have to move it forward. It's like self-confidence, the person with energies that get it done. In the kingdom of God, they may be accepted, but unlike the world, they're not necessarily honored. In fact, those who are poor in spirit are honored by the Lord. They're part of the kingdom, part of the family. Verse 4, blessed are the people who mourn. Really apropos of our time, though perhaps mixed in our setting, for those of us who know the Lord and wait anxiously for the well-being of those on the battlefield. Even if we mourn, we know, though we'll grieve, we'll see them again. But for those who worry anxiously or could mourn without that hope, it's a deep grief, and they need the blessing. Verse 5, the meek are honored children, the ones who are mild, the submissive, those who aren't violent, those who aren't strong. Does the world honor those kind of people? Eh, not really. But the Father does. These are the counter-cultural values of the family, character the traits that the world does not honor, but the family of God does. But then Jesus describes those personal things everyone does that God honors. Verse 6, those who are hungry and thirsty, we might say desperate to be righteous. Verse 7, those who feel and can show mercy that come with the promise, and this time a threat, they're the ones who will receive mercy. Verse 8, and note carefully in light of what John wrote, the pure in heart are the ones who will actually see God. The pure have the same character all the way through. What's on the outside is on the inside. If they've grown really towards sainthood, what they think and what they say will be the same thing. And I expect most of us in this room, and I would include myself, know how hard that is. Those of you who are older Americans may remember the ivory soap ad that said 99 and 44 one-hundredths percent pure. All the same. That's what it means to be pure like Jesus. So 2,000 years on, a lot has happened. But you know the teaching is just as hard. It's just as counter to the teaching of the world and the ideas of the world now as it was then. Not harder, not easier. Now as then, we really can't manage it on our own, can we? But with the assistance of the Holy Spirit, I think we can safely say all these codes of conduct, conduct are within our reach by his grace. Verses 10 and 11 and 12 by our standards are much darker. At least that's how they feel to us. They reflect that third family reality with, with which we began, that the father's expectations are high. 
something we sometimes forget these days. It's filled with trials and it's filled with grace at the same time, but it requires God's and there is glory. Verse 10 reads plainly that if we're persecuted for being righteous, we, this is really extravagant, we own the kingdom of heaven. I'm not sure I know what that means, but I didn't find a commentator that did either. But clearly, it's something the Father holds in high honor. Verse 11 and 12 may take the honors for the most countercultural family value of all that insult, persecution, and evil false witness against us for Jesus' sake should fill us with joy. Clearly, not the joy of this world, but something that is very close to being just like Jesus, I think. At the moment we're in right now, much of the kind of people we call, like us, conservative Christians, are howling in outrage because of being mistreated in the media and in social media and by whoever else they want to name. You know, we've all lived in an historic bubble that has burst. I, the people in my class, clergy, are particularly prone to seeking affirmation. And we're going to have to get over it. Rejection is spiritually normal. It's not the new normal. It's the old normal. The almost always normal for those who follow the Lord. Moses, the prophets, Jesus and the apostles, the Roman persecution. And familiar to us, those headless martyrs over there that had their heads cut off by the Christian Brotherhood in 2015. Or 35 martyrs you might not remember from Kandamal, India, that died 35 years ago. Or last Tuesday, the 25 young Christians in northern Nigeria who were captured. One of them was murdered, three of them were wounded. And even now, in Azerbaijan, every Christian possible is being driven outside their borders. We must understand, we will join the Jewish people among the hated, just as we did at the beginning of the church. And that brings us to Revelation chapter 7. I'm going to turn there, 7, 9 to 17. It's one of just a handful of hopeful passages in the whole of Revelation, I think you know that. It displays both the most difficult and the most glorious expectations for a family of saints. The Apostle John's vision was given by the Holy Spirit to prepare the disciples of Jesus, the family, for what lay ahead. It seems, even though now feels like a persecution of sorts, that it still lays ahead of us. Verses 9 to 12 allow us to, to see it with John, though I'd want to note what we see with John is spiritual truth. Whether it looks just like that shouldn't be of any particular concern to us because it's the truth he wants us to know. And you know, Jesus told us we wouldn't know when it was going to happen or how it would be. I have no reason to believe the Holy Spirit would waste his time trying to disagree with him. But we should notice, verse 9, there will be a crowd around the throne, and it's immense. 
It's from every nation, and John doesn't leave it there. Every nation, every tribe, every people, every language group. And did you note, everyone is standing. You stand before a king, even if he's your father. That's what you do. And then what did they do? They fell down on their faces because you kneel before a king as well. And there were angels, and there was this vast crowd of of saints, and there were these creatures. They all stood, and then they all went down on their faces, and they all worshipped the Father and the Lamb that we know is Jesus. And then comes a detail that most commentators seem to ignore. One of the elders asked John a question. Of course, the elder must have been Jewish, so I started with a question. He said, who are these? Where'd they come from? Now, don't you think he knew that John wouldn't know? So why did he ask him? I suspect it was because the father was communicating to this child and through him to us. The father doesn't have to tell us everything. Maybe we can't handle it. And secondly, it's a massively wonderful piece of inspired truth that everyone has remembered down through the ages who knows the Lord or has read the Bible. Verse 14a, these are those who have come out of great tribulation. What tribulation? Which one? Perhaps any tribulation in history? Perhaps that long, grinding tribulation that lies ahead that will end the age? Probably it means all tribulation. This picture comes to us about the end of time, but the Father you know, is unbound by time. We are, but he isn't. Does which tribulation matter if we bear it for the honor of the family? As I said this morning, my my wife Sandy once said to me, she said, you know, we don't need to worry about it being the last time. It's already our last time. And that is true for a few of us in the room. But when we stand among the vast congregation in triumph and in glory, how much will the tribulation actually matter? Verse 14, the second half of it. They've washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb. How did their robes become white if they were dipped in blood? I'll tell you why. Because this mortal body, this one, was washed clean of its sin because I stood before Jesus one night in April a long time ago, tattered and soiled and sinful. And I asked him to forgive me, to wash me clean, a kind of celestial mikvah. And then I became part of the family. And that's why the ancient church concluded that All who reconcile to the Father through Jesus' forgiveness are the saints. He made that true. But I think it goes deeper when we add the tribulation. These are the ones who, like Jesus, took up their cross and were reviled and persecuted and then murdered. 
that the Father's reputation, his love, may be known throughout the world forever. Heroes, martyrs who would not deny him, that his name be honored everywhere in this mortal and fallen world. But what we have read today emphasizes that sainthood is a continuum from those who are born again to those all the way through to the end when, by God's grace, they can look like Jesus. This is a deeply personal affair for each of us, that growth along that continuum. It's precious. It's costly. It's worth living for. And it's worth dying for. Now, in this age where everybody says we're broken, can we do this? Of course we can do it. Not by ourselves, but we know and trust the Lord and Master of the universe who has told us he will never, ever abandon us. Every disciple is and should never stop becoming a saint. But all of us are a saint in the making. That's the family code. Oh, by the way, I didn't tell you, we're actually a military family. We're arrayed against the gates of hell, morning, night, and noon. And like every soldier in this country, we must train to be tough enough for the trials. And if our current situation has not persuaded you, has not persuaded you of that, you're in denial. We are running out of time to get prepared. The Church of Jesus the Messiah is not ready. We haven't learned to really pray like prayer warriors. We have not learned the scriptures well enough to use them like a sword, at least not most of us. We really haven't learned to serve each other in humility and grace. We haven't learned to stop the stream of, of subtle criticism, everything around us that doesn't look like us. You know. We haven't learned to love in the way that only is concerned about the well-being of the person we're loving. But he will always convict us when we fail. He'll forgive us when we repent. And he'll pick us up and take us on. If we face those who revile us, we are not the ones who are at liberty to, to take revenge. The family code won't allow it. We must love them for their best, what they should receive and need to receive. And we must have courage. Courage. You all know the weapons of our warfare. And I think you're somewhat practiced in using them. But we have to become combat soldiers. One more thing. It's common knowledge the persecution brings a harvest of new adoptees. Persecution brings new saints, new members to the family. And if that's the price of persecution, it seems worthwhile. Because you see, they will look at the army of saints and they'll look at the army of the enemies and they'll say, of which one do I want to be a part? Because you know there's no middle ground. And that will begin the great victory of the ages. This is what we live for. This is what we'll die for. This is what 
we believe. But you know, it's not all about trial. In fact, that's not the whole code. The rest of it from this passage goes like this. All these who've been through this trial, the ones who were dressed in white, they're before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence, with his presence. Never again will they hunger, never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to the springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And therein lies the glory. Let's pray. Our Father and our King, by the resurrection of your Son, Jesus the Messiah, on this, the first day of the week, you conquered sin, put death to flight, and gave us the hope of everlasting life. Redeem all our days by this victory. Forgive our sins. Banish our fears. Make us bold to praise you and to do your will. And steal us to wait for the consummation of your kingdom on that last great day. Through Jesus the Messiah, our Lord. Thank you for listening. If you've been blessed by this teaching, let us know by leaving a comment on our Facebook page, on SoundCloud, or by leaving a review in Apple Podcasts. You can offer practical support by giving a donation at ChristChurchJerusalem.org. Thank you, and blessings from the City of the King.